on. A special welcome goes out to all those uh, viewing online. You might not know it, but there's about 100 to 200 uh, eyes watching um, from their home screens. So remember that if there's ever any Cato events that you can't attend, you can certainly do that at home. Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the director of student programs here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I work with our internship program, host various student groups here for policy briefings, uh, and find other ways to get Cato's message out to young people. Um, we also hold events here once a month, events that address uh, pressing political issues uh, with a special lens on the future uh, and how later generations will be or are being shaped uh, by politics as they happen today. Um, I hope to see you back here again next semester. Uh, we're kicking off, uh, we're continuing this series uh, with a bunch, uh, a bunch of cool topics, including free speech, uh, more foreign policy, free market environmentalism, uh, prohibition, and more. Uh, if you follow us on Facebook, you can keep uh, tabs on when we're hosting those events. Several months back, uh, Malou Innocent, uh, whom I'll introduce uh, in a minute here, uh, we were talking about how most college students today have minimal or no recollection of a time when the US um, was not engaged in active, widespread, almost permanent conflict overseas. Uh, sure, our generation, which is you know, less than a decade older than the current college generation, uh, we had you know, the end of the Cold War, Desert Storm, Somalia, and a few other skirmishes, uh, but nothing as long-term or as permanent uh, as what has become the norm today. Uh, also, in the past decade or so, the US has racked up more and more debt, uh, with the wars in the Middle East alone costing over $3 trillion. Uh, our, our modern foreign policy and the threat of terrorism has also led us to cede more power to the government uh, over our civil liberties with warrantless surveillance, um, you know, those intimate airport massages, compliments of the TSA, <laughs> uh, and uh, a less, uh, less restrictions on presidential war powers. Um, this, uh, this is the political climate in which today's college students came of age. So our conversation shifted naturally from beyond the pure novelty of this different worldview possessed by young people to a discussion of how it's, it's shaping the future generation and how it's going to shape uh, our politics moving forward. Uh, so we got together, brainstormed, threw some ideas around, and decided that uh, we didn't know enough and we should find some scholars who did. Uh, and that's exactly uh, what we did, and we put together this forum. Uh, and from the looks of it, you know, with a room full of people, a bunch of people registered online, uh, it seems like we struck a nerve on a topic that provokes a lot of interest. So uh, I really uh, hope that tonight um, we can learn a lot from this discussion and that will carry over into the reception that we'll host in the Winter Garden following this with uh, conversations with our scholars and conversations amongst each other. Um, the discussion tonight will be moderated by Malou Innocent. Uh, she's a foreign policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And her primary research interests include uh, Middle East and per Persian Gulf security issues and US, US foreign policy toward Pakistan, Afghanistan, and China. She appears uh, as a guest regularly on CNN, BBC News, Fox News, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, CNN Asia, and Reuters. Uh, and she's published reviews and articles on national security and international affairs in journals such as Survival, Congressional Quarterly, and the Harvard uh, International Review. She's also written for Foreign Policy, Wall Street Journal Asia, Christian Science Monitor, Armed Forces Journal, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Washington Times, and other outlets here in the US and overseas. Um, she earned dual Bachelor's of Arts degrees in Mass Communications and Political Science from the University of California at Berkeley, and a Master's uh, of Arts degree in International Relations from the University of Chicago. Uh, she also gained firsthand experience on the topics she researches and discusses, discusses by traveling to Pakistan in 2008 and Afghanistan with 
Doug Bando, in 2010. Uh, I hope you'll ask a lot of the questions uh, during the Q&A, and please join me in welcoming Malou Innocent. Thank you, Chip, for that kind introduction, and thank you to all of you for attending tonight's event. And thank you also to everyone watching online. Uh, you'll have to excuse me, I'm actually recovering from a cold, so I might sound a little uh, hoarse, so excuse that. Uh, our aim this evening is to examine how a decade of continual foreign intervention has influenced young Americans. To what extent has perpetual war made younger generations less passionate about intervening in the domestic affairs of other countries? Have the post-9-11 wars and the ways they were waged eroded or increased the propensity of young Americans to question government policies? Will young people come to believe that their country's values are best served by perfecting democracy here at home? And finally, given the ongoing debates about the deficit and the fiscal cliff, will the next generation even have the economic resources and financial wherewithal to crusade for American values militarily? Here to discuss these questions is a distinguished panel of experts I have the honor and the privilege to introduce. First up will be Doug Bondow, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune Magazine, National Interest, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Times. He speaks frequently at academic conferences, on college campuses, and to business groups. He has been a regular commentator on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. He holds a JD from Stanford University, and unfortunately, he'll have to dart out a little early. He's going to be an election observer in Kuwait, and he'll be taking an international flight tonight, so unfortunately, he has to duck out a little early. Uh, next, after Doug Bondow, will be Dr. Stephen Cull, a political psychologist who has conducted numerous studies of public opinion on international issues. He is the director of the Program at International Policy Attitudes and is a senior research scholar at the Center for International and Security Studies at the University of Maryland. He has conducted polls and focus groups in over 30 countries around the world. He appears regularly in international media and has testified before Congress, the State Department, the United Nations, and the European Commission. He is also the author of a four-year study of the Muslim public opinion entitled Feeling Betrayed, the Roots of Muslim Anger on, at America, a book that I cannot recommend highly enough. Finally, we have Thomas Duncan, graduate lecturer at George Mason University and a dissertation fellow at the Mercatus Center. His research interests include political economy, public choice theory, the institutional economics, and development economics. He has published and given academic presentations on the economy of the military-industrial complex, exploring the challenges inherent in the provision of national defense and the distortive nature of the relationship between industry, the military, and Congress through the lens of public choice. Without further ado, I cede the podium to my good friend and colleague, Doug Bondow. Well, thank you, Malou. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I do apologize for having to run out. It's a fabulous topic. I think it's one that's very important. Some of us are old enough to remember a time when we weren't actually involved in shooting wars, but if you look over the last 10 or 20 years, we have constantly been at war in many different places. We live in a very different world. It's, it's one where I think there are extraordinary con consequences that we have to consider. In many ways, I think our current foreign policy can be called an imperial one. And the question is, you know, what, what does America get out of empire? And to some degree, I think it depends on who. You know, clearly, if one is part of the, the establishment, if one is uh, part of the Washington uh, elite, if one is, you know, interest groups that have, uh, you know, things at stake, that war can be very profitable. War can be quite advantageous. 
You know, if you're the Secretary of State, it's a lot more fun to be Secretary of State in America where you wander around the world telling everyone what to do than imagine being the foreign minister of, oh, I don't know, Greece, where you don't tell anybody what to do. You know, you're kind of concerned about your own country, and that's kind of it. You know, it's not nearly as much fun. So there are a lot of advantages, I think, within kind of Washington and those who kind of support kind of things that Washington does. But how about the general public? You know, there was a statesman who I think encapsulated the issue quite well. He was asked about the question of war and people going to war, and his comment was, why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. And the person asking, well, well, wait a minute, how about democracies? I mean, you have elected officials, people have a voice. His response was, oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. That was Hermann Goering while he was awaiting hanging at uh, Nuremberg. And he was, he was interviewed by the psychiatrist who was talking to him at the time. And it strikes me he, in fact, got it quite right. Common people have very little reason to want war. They pay the cost. They die in it. They don't see all the grandiose visions and dreams that come out of it. Now, of course, you know, those who promote war you know, and uh, argue that we have a lot of advantages. I mean, we get security. We kill the bad guys. We're the preeminent power. We create stability around the world. We have lots of allies. You know, there's an argument about you know, trade. I mean, if you kind of create this stable international order, we have more trade. You know, we have influence. You kind of hear this, that we can kind of wander around the world kind of manipulating things and getting things out of it. We promote uh, democracy and freedom, humanitarianism. I mean, all of these things kind of get thrown out there. But I think it's important to step back and recognize the disadvantages, because very often the disadvantages seem to get lost in the discussion. You know, they, people don't like to mention those quite as much. The first is cost. Now, your military spending is the price of your foreign policy. If you want to do a lot around the world, you've got to have a big military. That's just the reality. You know, if you don't have you know, carrier groups, you don't have armored divisions, you don't have marines, you can't go and intervene in other countries. If you want to bomb other countries and you know, bring them to heel, you've got to have a military. That costs you money. And it's conventional forces that are quite expensive. If you don't do this right, the people who really you know, catch it are those who are in the armed services. My nephew is a SEAL. I mean, you talk about the kind of carbon fiber tip of the tip of the spear. I mean, these are people, if you're going to send them into things, you better have the backup for them. You don't send these people off and kind of leave them. Well, that's why the United States accounts for roughly half of all military spending on Earth. Very little of that money is genuine defense. Most of that is offense. The projection of power is what's expensive. The wars that we've gotten into should be viewed as unfunded liabilities. We spent around $850, $860 billion so far in Iraq. You know, that is kind of running down because we don't have troops there anymore. But the long term, we will still spend two or three trillion dollars on the Iraq war because of all the injured we will be caring for for the rest of their lives. The injuries that came out of that war in terms of loss of limbs and mental injuries with the IEDs mean we are caring for people for the rest of their lives. This is another unfunded liability. You, know, you do something right now and 30 years from now we will still be paying for it. You also see the role of inflation and economic regulation. And this is particularly in the bigger wars we fought, World War I, World War II, where the government, you know, how do you, how do you pay for this? 
You have inflationary monetary policies. The government comes in and takes over industries. You regulate. You seize control of the railroads, any number of other things. You know, what government does is to kind of make the system work in a wartime environment, gets very involved economically. It's the national security state, which I think Malou mentioned. You know, that we live at a time where not only things like the Patriot Act, which kind of become these Christmas trees where everybody says, I have a great idea. I've wanted to do this for 10 years, and now I have an argument for it. There's terrorism. Now we must do this. But you think we live at a time where a president of the United States declares that he can have arrested an American citizen in America and have him locked away in a brig without access to the courts or attorneys. It's an extraordinary claim in a republic. Or that the president can sit down with his 100 closest advisors and have video screens and slides and decide who to kill. Or you just kind of decide, you know, it's kind of like the old Roman emperor. You kind of do this or this. Well, that person, I think, deserves it. This one really doesn't. And these can be American citizens. Now, when you're dealing with terrorists, there's some difficult decisions to make. But still, one should feel kind of creepy about this in a democratic republic. Randolph Bourne said that war was the health of the state, and we see it in cases like this. It certainly lies. You know, not only dead Americans, which matter, <clears throat> but also dead foreigners. You know, the grand humanitarian adventure in Iraq, I think the starting point for estimates of dead Iraqi civilians is probably around 200,000. Now, we didn't kill them, but we blew up the place, and they died in the aftermath. That is a consequence of action that we have to take into account, that unfortunately war tends not to be very humanitarian. And one wants to be very careful when one wanders around the world loosing the dogs of war about what's going to happen to the society within which those dogs charge. We also see in the lives of American uh, military personnel the disruption of their lives. The reserves, for example, who've been treated in ways they never expected, where suddenly they go called up again and again. And the, you know, the pressure at times for a draft. If you really want to have an imperial policy and patrol the globe, how do you manage that? How do you patrol other societies? How do you occupy and transform other societies? But I think what's you know, very important here is it doesn't even serve our security interests. Now, security interests would be the most obvious one. You go to war because you think it's necessary for your security. But I think it's important to recognize <laughs> you know, that if you look at you know, kind of what you get, you know, that the wars you know, typically don't help us very much. That what you find is we get drawn into war. Military action tends not to stop where it is. You know, the assumptions that people make is these are going to be easy. You know, in World War I, as they marched off to war, people were cheering. I mean, they had you know, noted you know, cases where, for example, Russian royalty were saying, we're all going to meet in Berlin. Of course, these are the people who were slaughtered by the Bolsheviks. It's like, oops, that didn't work out very well. There's a famous former US senator from South Carolina, Senator Chestnut, and he offered, you know, as the Civil War was breaking, he said he would drink all of the blood that would be shed as a result of secession. That's another one of those oops, you know, 620,000 lives later, maybe that didn't work out quite as well as he wanted. We think of Vietnam, where, I mean, early years, Americans presumed this was going to be quite easy. Iraq was going to be a cakewalk. That very often these things turn out far, far worse than one expects. The costs are far, far higher than ever imagined. And even the steps that kind of short of war tend to get you into wars. Alliances, we hope, will you know, prevent war, but alliances also act as tripwires. They act as transmission belts of war. If you guarantee the security of another power, you get drawn in. And World War I is a fabulous example. You know, in uh, June 28th, I think it was in Sarajevo, you know, some Serbian nationalist decides to off the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. Now, this is not something that really should concern the United States, shouldn't be of a great interest to Japan, really shouldn't have been that important to uh, you know, even Great Britain. But lo and behold, it's the few, it's the, the lighter 
you know, the flame that hits and the fuse that goes to the bomb, because that means Austro-Hungary has to go after Serbia because it's state terrorism. The Russians have to defend Serbia because it's an ally. The Germans have to go to Austria's defense because they're allies and they're encircled. The French are allied with Russia, so they come in. The Brits don't like this. They don't want German domination of the continent. And ultimately, America shows up in the conflict, and so does Japan. And lo and behold, we have a world war because of some damn fool thing in the Balkans. The point is, these alliances can be extraordinarily dangerous. You know, we think they're going to deter conflict, but very often what they do is they lead to conflict. They expand conflict. And what you find is intervention tends to be endless. We are still dealing with the consequences going back to 1953 of having pushed out Prime Minister Mossadegh and brought in the Shah. Of course, lo and behold, the Shah wasn't very nice. People in, Iraq, in Iran don't like him. They throw him out. The Muslim kind of crazy people take control. Now, of course, we defend and we support Iraq when it decides to invade Iran because we're worried about the crazies. Well, then guess what happens? It's Iraq who decides it wants to take over the Gulf, so we have to go to war with them and put troops in Saudi Arabia, and that, of course, gets Osama bin Laden mad, and on it goes. Now, of course, we're still worried about the Iranians because those crazy people now want nuclear weapons. Oh, my goodness. Now, that was what I thought Iraq was supposed to want, but oh, well. <laughs> These things never end. The moment you get in them, social engineering doesn't work very well at home. Boy, try it abroad when you know nothing about the region, nothing about history, nothing about the religion, nothing about anything else. Boy, it really works well. Then we have terrorism. I want to emphasize terrorism is an awful thing. Nothing justifies it. But it's important to recognize there are consequences of actions. Now, I mean, Ronald Reagan found this. I worked for Ronald Reagan. But Ronald Reagan decided to put US troops in the middle of a civil war in Lebanon. At the time, there were 25 different armed groups this was not a good place to put American troops as peacekeepers, especially when they were supporting the government that controlled little more than the capital. But lo and behold, and you go back at the time, you go through the archives of the New York Times, what you find is you can find stories on the uh, New Jersey sitting offshore, the battleship bombarding Muslim villages. Now, this is not something that's uh, likely to make folks happy. And lo and behold, some folks, they don't have, bear, you know, their own battleships, they don't have aircraft carriers, so what they do is they take out after the US Embassy and they take out after the Marine Corps barracks. There are consequences, and those consequences, even groups that don't have the same kind of power that we have, want to strike back and they look for ways to strike back. That unfortunately, the more you act and get involved and do things, the more likely you are to find people wanting to go after you. We find that now with the drones, you know, with war in Afghanistan and Iraq, now, one might decide these are absolutely necessary, but you count the cost. There was a very interesting discussion. The guy in uh, you know, Times Square who tried to set off the bomb didn't work out. You know, they arrested him. He's before the judge. And the judge says, why did you do this? And he said, because the US is killing Pakistanis. And the judge said, yeah, but there are civilians here in Times Square. And he said, that, that doesn't matter. They elect their government. They're responsible. And the judge said, oh, but come on, there are kids. And he says, well, the American government doesn't care. It drops drones all over and kills anybody that it wants. Now, this doesn't justify what he did, but it gives a sense of how some people respond. And I always tell people, it's important to try to reflect on how we would react if somebody was doing to us what we do to them. If the Chinese were dropping drones across American neighborhoods explaining they were killing terrorists, we might have a rather unsettled and unhappy view of the Chinese. More so, perhaps, even than Mitt Romney did uh, during the campaign. You know, that these are challenges for us to understand that the more you act, the more you intervene, the more you engage in military conflict and combat, you are likely to create enemies who are likely to try to respond. So today, the US has an extraordinarily dominating position. We account for roughly half of the world's military spending. We spend more in real terms than we spent at any point during the Cold War, the Vietnam War, or the Korean War. Now, that would suggest we are more endangered today than at any point in any of those periods. 
and that is insane. The Soviet Union is gone. The Warsaw Pact is gone. Maoist China is gone. We are allied with most of the industrialized states on Earth. You take us plus the Europeans, the Japanese, the Australians, and the South Koreans. We have 80% of the military spending. Are we really that endangered? If we are, we have to ask why. And I would argue that if we are that endangered, it's because of our policies. That our policies are not, in fact, making us safe. Our policies are making us far more endangered. And these are consequences for young people today because if these wars go on, it's a question of spending, it's a question of civil liberties, it's a question of being drafted into the military, it's any number of consequences that come out of that. Now, defense is important. It's in the Constitution, it's a constitutional responsibility. But I would argue that means defense of America, genuine defense, not trying to run the world, not creating a new imperium. It's not welfare for allies. You know, the Europeans have economic troubles, so why not let us defend them? Well, that was a great deal, thank you very much, but maybe we have bigger troubles. Let them defend themselves. We, today, much of our defense is actually out, you know, welfare for allies. It shouldn't be social engineering to try to rebuild failed societies. Both Malou and I have been to Afghanistan. It's a tragic situation. There are very good people there, people who want a liberal society. But I don't know how we can give it to them. I don't know how many years it will take, how many lives of Americans, how much money we have to spend. I don't think we can do it. So we have to ask what our core responsibilities are, and I don't think that kind of social engineering is right. You know, when should we risk the lives of Americans? When should we you know, spend the wealth of Americans? When should we threaten our liberty? When should we put our security at risk? It needs to be when something is critically at stake for the American people. And I think this is particularly important when one thinks of our own military personnel. When do you risk their lives? When their own community has something at risk. They're not pawns in some global chess game to sacrifice in some grand design. You know, the great moment came with Madeleine Albright and uh, Colin Powell. And Madeleine Albright turns to Colin Powell and says, well, what's the use of having this wonderful military you keep talking about if we never use it? Now, Colin Powell is somebody who had signed letters to people who had died in Vietnam. He served in that war. And the next line in his autobiography was, I almost had an aneurysm. And that was an appropriate reaction. That is not the way to treat US military personnel. They serve to defend their society and their country. They don't serve to be sent off into some grand crusade for you know, the sofa samurai in Washington. This is something we should be very careful when we put their lives at stake. Something needs to be very critically important for our own society. <clears throat> War is the ultimate big government program. You know, it threatens lives, it threatens our liberties, it wastes our money, it puts our society in danger. We should do this only where something is absolutely critical. We have a system of ordered liberty in America. We focus on individual liberty and limited government. Our foreign policy should support that, not threaten it. Unfortunately, our current policy of constant war threatens the very fundamentals of American liberty rather than affirms them. Thank you. Since Doug has to leave early, if anyone has questions for his presentation, you're more than happy to ask them now, and then we can get to Dr. Cull. Anyone have any questions? Yes, the gentleman in the front right there. I do apologize for having to leave. I really would enjoy being part of the entire discussion. Um. My name is Poya and from Georgetown. Uh, great presentation as always. But a question I have, uh, the things you talk about, they've been going on for 
I would argue, for 100 years. And it's almost like in our DNA almost for most Americans. How do you move people away from thinking like that or changing their mind? Because it's not easy. And how do you do it? Like, how would you go about doing it? Well, I think to some degree it's happening now because the costs are becoming more obvious. As long as the costs don't seem obvious, as long as we seem impervious to attack, as long as we have lots of money to spend however we want, as, lo as long as you know, everyone seems to affirm the role that we have, it's easy, I think, for people to say, well, it seems to be working. I have other things I'm worried about. I think, among other things, the fact that we're functionally bankrupt. You know, where is the money going to come from? How, do we, you know, how can we afford to do everything we're doing and, you know, we're going to go into, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, tell the elderly, guess what, we're going to give, get rid of your Social Security and Medicare because, you know, we want to defend the Europeans. I mean, the poor, poor people, they just can't do it. And we have countries we want to re, re, you know, remake. I think that, uh, the, you know, the fact that lives, you know, if you look at what people say about Afghanistan at the moment, you know, the vast majority of people, even Republicans, wonder, what are we doing there? They just don't get it. You know, it's 11 years on, Al-Qaeda's gone. Now, come on, what, what are we doing? Well, we're trying to create some, you know, a, a nation state there. So I think that's the critical thing, is that people have to perceive there is a real cost and not see much benefit out there. And I do think that attitude may be changing. But you're right, it's been one. Americans have been comfortable in their role. And that helps having, being in the biggest, most powerful country, the richest country, the most productive. It's easy to kind of waste a lot of money and do things you know, in this way, if you don't perceive the cost. But I think the, the future looks very different, I think, than the past. Let's go to the back, the gentleman in the very back row, with his hand up. <laughs> Hello there, my name's um, Adrian Orchard. It's, my name's Adrian Orchard. Um, I'm from the UK, uh, and I'm in the Royal Navy. Um, thank you very much for the presentation, that was fascinating. Um, I also have been to Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, the question I do have, though, is the idea that um, you've been spending the last 10, 15, 20 years on expeditionary warfare, which I think is you know, take, taking the fight to other people. Uh, I, I, I see that. Um, where do you see the Asia-Pacific region um, with the idea that you would want to uh, come back to the States and maybe defend America and its interests? Does that also include forging strong military partnerships because strong military partnerships lead to strong industrial partnerships out in the Asia-Pacific region as opposed to allowing uh, a China that may wish to dominate that region and therefore keep the U.S. out of it? Well, I'm skeptical that the, that the economic will necessarily follow the military. I mean, I've heard people say, well, you know, in Korea, our alliance gives us advantages. And I say, well, do they what? Do they buy more American automobiles because of the alliance? I've never seen that. They've been very protectionist. You know, the, it's the U.S.-South you know, Korean trade agreement that's been helpful in opening up some of those markets. I mean, the U.S., in terms of East Asia, particularly Japan and South Korea, has never put pressure on those allies and has never been willing to bring its troops home, never used that as a threat. So I'm skeptical it brings much economic advantage. To the contrary, it subsidizes trading, potential trading rivals. And I, you know, I mean, today the South Koreans trade more with uh, China than they do with the United States, even as they would like to have us stick around and defend them. I and mean, they're quite open about that. If you look at the numbers, I mean, China now has a dominant trading position there. And there's more investment going on. The South Koreans are very active, you know, increasingly active in China. And China you know, is increasingly you know, still much lower levels active in South Korea, even as the South Koreans are frustrated over Chinese policy on North Korea. So I think the economics is going to be going on as well. I think the U.S., the best thing the U.S. can do is get its own economy in order, be more efficient, be a better trading partner, 
and make sure you forge some of those trading agreements to try to get openness on both sides. I think on security terms, we need to be a, the kind of balancer, you know, kind of the, the offshore balancer. I don't think the U.S. should be the one to worry about who owns Scarborough Reef. I mean, the Filipinos can't be bothered to create a navy that works. I mean, their, their flagship is an ancient American ship. It's like a 1960s American vessel. That's their best vessel in the Filipino Navy. This is crazy. Yeah, but they want us to back them up. My reaction is, well, if you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Chinese over territorial claims, you better come up with a better military. Don't expect us. And, you know, the Japanese now want to reformulate the uh, defense guidelines to have us guarantee that in the, you know, the Daiyu, Senkaku, whatever, whichever you know, one you want to use, that dispute that we will back up the Japanese with our military force if they get into some kind of a shooting contest with the Chinese over disputed territory. I don't think that's very good for America. I think that creates very bad incentives. It encourages them to be more confrontational. You know, if you have big brother behind you, you're more likely to kind of challenge you know, the big brother in the neighborhood. Our challenge with China is how do you work together with a rising power? I don't think we can forever assume we can be dominant along their borders. And I think what they're doing now is they're very smart. They're coming up with uh, the ability to deter us. They don't need 11 carrier groups. They just have to be able to sink American carriers. If they can sink American carriers, and there's a controversy with Taiwan, the Joint Chiefs goes to the president and says, yes, we can send in the Seventh Fleet, but you know it might go to the bottom. Well, you know, gee, the president's going to have to really think about that. And I think that's what the Chinese are after. They want subs. They want missiles. They want to take out satellites. They don't need to have the same conventional capability, but they can very much raise the cost for us. And I think it's very hard to overcome that, especially for bankrupt. I mean, are we going to maintain the kind of carrier forces, troops on station, larger militaries focused on China, where it's maintaining American dominance as opposed to necessarily protecting American homeland? I think that's very dicey. OK, we'll just take one last question. Doug, you want to choose which one you'd like to take? Sir. Hi, Clint Townsend with Students for Liberty. Um, there's, uh, you know, a lot of conflict between objectivists and libertarians with regards to foreign policy. And I think that's perhaps unnecessary because the objectivist foreign policy holds that all imminent existential threats should be annihilated in the most reasonably expeditious manner possible. And I don't think when you get down to the raw principle of that, that libertarians ought to disagree with that um, beyond the application of... Uh, how they go about actually applying that um, that principle, like um, Leonard Peikoff has in saying that you know we should uh, um, nuke Iran, which I just think is unreasonable. So, do you see anything that strikes you as unreasonable about the the principle um, that I laid out? Well, I guess I suppose it depends on. I mean, the the application is the real issue. I mean, to my mind, obviously, if you face existential threats, that's the most important thing for the U.S. government to deal with. The question is, what do you do about it? <clears throat> My guess is that in a lot of cases, deterrence is what you do. You face the Soviet Union, it's a monstrous menace, but you don't want to start a global war in the hopes you can defeat it because 30 years down the road, maybe it'll do something bad against you. So I think that's where, I mean, you have a, a variety of tools there. You might use alliances. Some of these things might change over time. Some, I think the question is, how militaristic is this principle? I don't think it necessarily means aggressive military action. It means you have to take, if there's an existential threat, you need to con confront it. But there may be a variety of tools to use in confronting it. So I'm not sure annihilation, you know, that might be nice if you can do it and do it cheaply and not have great risk, but I think that's seldom the case. Over the long term, you know, what, what are the consequences? 
You, know, you try to annihilate you know, the Soviet Union, then what happens, these sorts of things. So I guess on principle, maybe there's not much of a difference. I think the real issue is application. And if you're saying, yeah, nuke the Iranians, that tells me there, there is a difference in application then, because I, I certainly wouldn't support that, you know, that application of the principle. Thank you so much, Doug. And sorry, apologies for having to leave. All right, I'm Stephen Cull from the Program on International Policy Attitudes, and uh, I've been studying public opinion in the United States and around the world for some time. Uh, recently, I was involved with a study with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, um, and I'm going to share with you some of the key findings of that, uh, of that study. As you will see, I'm more in the uh, descriptive mode uh, rather than so much the prescriptive mode that uh, the previous, previous speaker was in. Um, so, um, let's see here if this is going to work. Ah, there we go. Okay, this button works better. Okay, so we conducted uh, uh, with the Chicago Council a, a um, large-scale study, 1,877 uh, people. It's a, it was a random sample of the American public. Um, it was conducted uh, last May through June. Uh, and this is part of a, an ongoing series of studies going all the way back to the early 70s that the Chicago Council has done. So I'm going to be pointing out some of the uh, new trends that we have found. Uh, we found some of these trends uh, two years ago, and we talked about a theme of a, a greater sense of constraints on internationalism, that the American public continues to support international engagement, but they have a greater sense of there being constraints and a greater sense of a kind of exhaust, exhaustion setting in to some extent related to the wars, um, not a, a good deal of satisfaction with the, with the outcome of the wars, and of course also, also the military, part of the economic constraints. So here are some examples. Uh, this is a question that has been asked uh, all the way back to 1974, asking wh whether people think the United States should take an active part in world affairs or stay out of world affairs. And in the top line shows those who say that the United States should take an active part. And as you can see, in uh, 2002, after 9-11, uh, there was an upward spike. And then since then, there has been a gradual downward movement. And you see that it's, it's at one of its lowest points now. And those who say the United States should stay out of world affairs is at one of its highest points. So this is an overarching trend, but what's particularly interesting and re in relevant to the topic of this uh, panel is that this is more pronounced in young people, or what I will call millennials, people 18 to 29 years old. As you can see, they're on they're the bottom line there, the, the, the blue line on the bottom. And as you can see, they have been staying below the norm and have particularly been going down lately. Uh, even in the last two years, we saw a really sharp drop from 60% down to 48%, saying that the United States should uh, take an active part in world affairs. So that is, uh, and, and that is extremely unusual in the whole history of the, of, uh, the Chicago Council polls to find any, any number um, of any group following below 50%. Um, you see declining concern about international threats. The threat of international terrorism, uh, this is the top line there. These are the people who see it as uh, critical. Uh, there's been this downward movement. The possibility of unfriendly countries becoming nuclear powers. 
again, this downward movement, and Islamic fundamentalism even dropping below 50% in uh, uh, the perception that it's critical. And here again, you see all of these effects are more pronounced in young people. So here, back in 2002, uh, young people were no different than the, the, the general public in terms of how much they saw this uh, threat of international terrorism as critical, but they have been falling off at a faster rate uh, than the general public. Overall, there's a dissatisfaction with the active uh, U.S. military role in the world. Uh, this is part of a broader theme that we've been uh, studying for some, for some decades now, uh, and that is that there's a discomfort with the United States being in a kind of hegemonic role in the world. There's an unease un with that. That doesn't mean that people simply want to disengage from the world, but there is uneasiness. And let me show you some um, um, uh, trends on this. Um, there's a fair amount of dissatisfaction with the Afghan war. Uh, asked whether the war was worth fighting or not. Uh, the blue line there uh, shows that back in um, um, uh, 2007, uh, still 56% said it was worth fighting. And then that's been on this downward slide, particularly lately, now all the way down to 32% saying that it was worth fighting. Uh, the war in, uh, in, in Iraq, that has also been on this downward slide, also going all the way down to 32% now, saying that it, is, it was, not, was not worth fighting. Uh, this is in some ways the most potent, I think. The question was whether the U.S. military action in Afghanistan has made the United States uh, more safe, uh, less safe, or made no difference in regard to terrorism, which, of course, was a key purpose of the war, and only 30% uh, say that it has made the United States more safe. And the number in regard to Iraq, the Iraq war, was almost the same. And this is uh, across parties as well. Uh, among Republicans, you get more saying that, that uh, it, was, it was worth fighting, um, but uh, you don't, uh, are, these numbers are the ones who say that it's not worth fighting. And so in, in you have majorities, of, large majorities of Democrats um, and independents saying that it was not worth fighting. Um, smaller, um, a majority in Afghanistan and slightly less than 50% in regard to Iraq. So it's, it's not as strong as Republic in, among Republicans, but uh, uh, it's still quite strong. Um, on, uh, there are a number of statements that were put forward about the Iraq war. The experience of the Iraq war should make nations more cautious about using military force to deal with rogue states. 71% agree. The war has worsened Americans' relations with the Muslim world, 70% agree. Uh, the war will lead to the spread of democracy in the Middle East, 68% disagree. The threat of terrorism has been reduced by the war, 69% disagree. Uh, and here is uh, a, a question that we've been asking for many years now, and in, in a sense captures an essential uh, uh, quality of, of, of American thinking. Um, the statement is that the U.S. is playing the role of world policemen more than it should be, and an overwhelming 78% agree with that statement. And that's something that really springs off of people's lips in focus groups. They, this is something they say very spontaneously. So then what do they want? Well, they don't really want to disengage. It's not correct to say that the American public is isolationist, or, or simply wants to withdraw from world affairs. They do want to be involved, but they want to be involved in a more cooperative way and with uh, a greater sense of, of, of accepting 
constraints. Um, and here are some examples of that. Uh, asked what, what uh, position comes closest to yours and offered three uh, uh, positions for the U.S. role in the world. First, looking at that top one, as the sole remaining superpower, the U.S. continued to be the prominent, preeminent world leader in solving international problems. Only 8% endorsed that view. But jumping down to the bottom one, the U.S. should withdraw from most efforts to solve international problems. Just 19% take that position. Well, 71% endorsed the view that the U.S. should do its share in efforts to solve international problems together with other countries. And you see this in how they uh, look at uh, the role uh, for the United States in the Libyan military campaign and ask what role the U.S. should have played. Only 7% say it should have taken the leading role in this campaign. 41% say a major role, but not a leading role. 31% uh, a minor role, but only 19% say it should not have participated at all. Um, they, in regard to, to dealing with Iran, they put much more emphasis on, on non-military approaches. Uh, these are for prescriptions for the UN Security Council. 80% uh, favor tighter economic sanctions. 80% favor continued diplomatic efforts but only 45% favor authorizing a military strike, and, and, and uh, though only 21% say that, the, the, that nothing should be done. Um, now, if uh, as a follow-on question, one asks, well, what if the UN Security Council does not want to uh, pursue a military strike? The numbers who oppose a military strike on a unilateral basis, are, it goes up to 70%. So, um, this is, uh, you'll see more of this, that uh, there's a strong resistance to, to using military force except as part of a cooperative multilateral effort. Um, another interesting question, if Israel were to attack Iran's nuclear program and Iran were to retaliate and then they were to go to war, should the United States come into the war on, on, on Israel's side? And 59% say no, that Israel should not, the President of the United States should not come in. Um, in terms of the situation in Syria, uh, you do see support for diplomatic sanctions. Uh, you also find 58% for enforcing a no-fly zone, um, uh, uh, the, the implication is that that's multilateral. Uh, but sending arms and supplies, that is not very popular. Bombing Syrian air defense is definitely not. And sending troops into Syria, a uh, very small number, just 14%. Um, on the question of defending South Korea, you have majorities if they were attacked by North Korea. You have majorities saying, yes, if it's a UN operation, okay, but unilaterally, no. Uh, then it drops off sharply just to 41%. Uh, what about having bases in Afghanistan? Well, even as recently as 2008, there was some feeling that, that we should, but as you can see in the last uh, four years, that has dropped off steeply, and now you have only a minority favoring that. Bases in Pakistan, uh, you see the same downward trend um, on uh, having bases in Pakistan. Um, and uh, there's also declining support for bases in Asia for both Japan and South Korea. And at this point, you only have one country where a, a clear majority favors uh, U.S. military bases, and that's South Korea, worth 60%. 
bare majority in, uh, for Japan and Germany, and for all of the others, Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Australia, Pakistan, you have majorities not supporting those bases. Um, and that and note Australia, because that is one area where we have uh, expanded our military presence. Um, there's a different tone of the American public. They're much more prone to talk to leaders of unfriendly countries or groups. This is part of their a kind of theme of a certain um, that, that you find in the American public, that they're more ready to talk uh, with countries that we have unfriendly relations with. And interestingly, too, when asked about, well, what about if Turkey, how do you feel about Turkey and Brazil taking a more independent role? And, and uh, you know, does that bother you? Because uh, uh, is it mostly good because they do not rely on the US so much? Or is it mostly bad because they are more likely to do things the US does not support? Well, overwhelmingly, they say, seven in 10 say, it's mostly good because then they do not rely on the U.S. so much. If you could create a kind of trade-off between control and, and uh, a burden sharing, they will tend to emphasize burden sharing as the higher priority. And then just one more thing on the question of defense spending. This is a kind of interesting dynamic. If you ask Americans, do you want to increase uh, defense spending, keep it the same, or cut it? Well, more say increase it than cut it, but you don't have a, ma a majority who say that they want to, um, pardon me, more say cut it than say they want to increase, but you do not have a majority saying that they want to cut it. Now, we have done these rather interesting studies where we actually show people the defense, show people the federal budget, how, how it is laid out, and then we give them the opportunity to make their own budget. And in that context, where they see how much goes to defense relative to other uh, areas, they, uh, large majorities cut it, about two-thirds uh, or so cut it. And on average, they cut it 18%. Uh, we also did another study where we went through, uh, showed them the, the size of the defense budget from different angles, um, uh, and ones that were emphasized by proponents of greater defense spending. And they heard arguments, pro and con, for why you should cut it or why you shouldn't cut it. And they found both arguments persuasive. They thought, oh, that makes, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's con convincing, that's convincing. And then we had them go through the whole process of looking at each area of the defense budget, make decisions, getting pro and con arguments as they went all along the way. Very long process. And in the end, it came out just the same place. On average, they cut it 18%. So as they get more information, as they really see the magnitude, Clearly, they do not know how, how big uh, U.S. Uh, uh, military spending is. And when they get that information, they say, wow, that, that's not really consistent with our concept of, of what America's role in the world should be. So they want to, but they, 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 an 18% cut is still a big, a, a big military. And the Americans do want to be involved in, in world affairs. But they want, they, they want to constrain it some. They, they think we're overdoing it. They're not exactly sure where the right, the, the sweet spot would be, but we're not there, and they do um, tend to want to pull in. They do want to stay engaged in a, in a variety of ways when it comes to uh, interventions that of a humanitarian nature, you get large support. And interestingly, young people are more supportive of interventions really related to you know, stopping genocide or, or large-scale um, um, human rights violations. So there is a, um, um, it's, where U.S. foreign policy is and where the American public is, there is definitely a tension. Uh, and Americans don't always have enough information to, to direct their, their, their um, political activity in a way that, that makes that uh, 
uh, makes that policy get more in line with it, but you can certainly see it consistently. And there is this trend seems to be growing and is more pronounced among young people, which uh, suggests that it, it'll probably continue to grow in the future. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit more directly on the actual cost of war on basically the U.S. population. So this is a paper I wrote with Chris Coyne at George Mason, uh, The Overlooked Costs of the Permanent War Economy. So to sort of frame the discussion, this is the M1 Abrams tank. For a variety of reasons, the tank, the Abrams tank hasn't really been a great asset to fighting wars. The Army basically has said, we don't really want any more. Congress said, actually, yeah, yeah, you want more. <laughs> Why? Not because they think that it's necessary for defense, but because General Dynamics land systems facility in Ohio needs 70 tanks in order to stay in operation. They don't have 70 tanks. The line closes. People there lose their jobs. Congress doesn't want that. How do you end up in a situation where you get this sort of outcome? Our argument is basically that we have the military-industrial complex, right? It's not just a short-term mobilization. It's not just, you know, oh, we had a war. We got to increase our spending. And then the war's over. We cut spending. In fact, we spend $700 billion a year. And we haven't been less than around, we've been around 400. We haven't been less than 300 since the 1950s. So what we've engendered is basically a situation in which we have a permanent war economy which means we have a continuous interplay of Congress, the military, and industry that's determining the size of our defense. In fact, our government expenditures for war become sort of the end purpose of economic activity rather than just something in which our economy does. This is sort of the graph since the war. Um, so we have some ups and downs, but in general, we stay around 400, 500. So what's the problem with this? National defense is designed sort of to protect the market institutions that lead to economic growth, right? Defense is meant to actually defend something. It's meant to defend economic growth and the things that make us capable of economic growth. Our argument here is that the permanent war economy actually by and in itself undermines the very market institutions that it's designed to protect. In fact, what we get is a situation where we have to protect the war economy, not the economy. We have a military industrial policy. Defense spending is now an industrial policy. The, we have a dual purpose. You want to both defend the nation and you want to have secure American jobs, right? Defense, think about in terms of the argument that has been sort of put forward with the uh, impending you know, deficit cuts, right? So you're going to have like a trillion cut. The argument put is that we can't have defense spending cut because it's necessary, it's untouchable. Not only will we be less safe, we will also lose all of the American jobs, right? I have some figures that I'll get to in a bit that show some of the arguments for this. Um, so how do we get a situation in which you get defense is 
necessary and untouchable. Why is it that you know, we don't sort of see the ups and downs or the actual demobilizations in the same way that we saw before? And the argument is one of the structure of institutions. Rather than having a market institution for our defense, so we have a system under a market institution, right? When you have a functioning price system, you have a functioning profit and loss system. What we see is you're able to get, you know, you had your figures, you had your, your numbers about what people actually want, and those are done in the surveys. But the question is whether or not those, those ideas are actually getting passed through the system and whether or not the government is actually getting to know that there's a declining trend. Because if you look back at my, my thing, that doesn't look like we're seeing people that want less spending. We're seeing people that want more spending. And yet you've shown us, just a second ago, you showed us the figures that show people actually don't want this. What they want is to see a decline. So you get a situation in this in which, rather than having to respond to the people in the market incentives, we have basically an administrative system that's set up, where the administrative preferences are filtered not through market systems, but through political clout and through rent-seeking. Right? So we don't have where the people and the, and the populace decide, hey, I want to have, you know, a couple of planes defending my borders. What we have is we have General Dynamics needs to keep its factories running. Or we have the military wants to have planes because they think they're really awesome, right? And you know, planes are actually really awesome. And there's no like penalty for me getting 35 new planes that cost, you know, $200 million. I might as well get those. And there's no penalty for that because we don't have the system that says, look, you're spending too much. Right? We might actually run into a fiscal cliff, but that's vastly different than all of these companies actually running out of business. Right? They don't run out of business when they produce the wrong amounts, which happens in a system of profit and loss under an actual market system. So we don't have any recourse to the feedbacks of profit and loss. What this means is that we're not only unable to determine the optimal mix, right? how many tanks do we want, we're actually like whether or not tanks are a good idea. We can't determine even overall defense, right? How much military is How much military do the consumers actually demand? How much military keeps us safe? And at what cost are we willing to pay for that? If I'm not in a system where I'm buying and selling, where I'm, I'm buying my own defense each time, we have no price, we have no profit and loss, we have no businesses that are operating subject to the constraints of consumer demand. It's all done administratively. It's all done bureaucratically. And it's all done in a system that doesn't have firm punishments by the law system. So it's much easier for like political actors to steer resources toward friends, right? This is a Higgs point. Higgs talks about this fairly often. You get, because you don't have any firm boundaries to push against, you get political rent seeking. And because we don't have a price system in order to determine who gets the contracts and who's, you know, can do it at the lowest cost, what we actually end up with is a system where deals are based on competence. And of that competence, one of the qualifications for whether or not you're competent to work for the Pentagon actually is whether or not you previously worked for the government officials. right? Which means I've not only now made friends, but me being friends is actually a large determinant in whether or not they're going to let me continue to be friends. So you end up with a system where all of my friends get the contracts that I have. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's any relation to what the people are actually demanding. So our point 
pushing forward is why it is that permanency matters, right? If you saw, if you remember the graph, you know, since the 1950s, we've had sort of this elevation. We've had the, the running 400 billion a year, and now we're up to 700 billion. The point is that once you push into misallocated resources, it's not simply that you get, so if you do just, if you do just a build up and a demobilization, that is a one-time sort of effect that you have on your economy. You go up, you lose whatever resources have gone into the economy, you demobilize, the resources are actually freed up, and then you go back to economic growth. If you get a permanent situation, you are misallocating resources permanently. Year by year, we have the same push for the Abrams tanks. Because year by year, the same argument's the same one. If you let this company fall, we lose all of those jobs. So every year, we get the same argument, you get the same debate, you get the same outcome. We keep pushing it, even though, even admittedly by the army itself, it doesn't provide any security for us. So we're spending resources on things that don't actually get us the outcomes that we're looking for, which is to, to secure. And what we have is that the economy starts to diverge from the path that it otherwise would have taken Right, you pull more and more resources into the economy, and those resources have to come from somewhere. And where they come from is the actual productive activities of the non-military sector of the economy. So you have costs that are seen versus the unseen. Right? For each plane that we make above what makes us actually secure, right, all of the titanium has to be pulled into making planes. Planes take titanium. Another use for titanium is to make more fuel-efficient cars. These are cars that are not being produced because the resources aren't there to produce them. So every year, we get poor, not just by the resources spent, but by the resources that we no longer have to put into other uses. So each new technology put into making more fuel-efficient cars, right? Imagine how the trickle-down of what that affects you monetarily is, right? If I could make a car, make it cheaper, make it more fuel-efficient, those are long-term gains for me economically that I can then put into other uses to find other cheaper ways of making other products and have it continuous through time. The entrepreneurial activity is also pulled from non-military uses, right? We have a lot of schools developed that are research universities in making military products. So all of our scientists that could be used to make, you know, the better cars, are in fact making marginally faster jets that may or may not add anything to security, that may or may not be actually demanded by the public. And so we continue to, with each new resource that we add to the military, we get a further bias towards activities for the military resources, right? Because with every jet that we make, we now have an opportunity to make that jet a little bit faster, which means we, it's lower cost at the moment to have someone come in and make a jet go you know, three miles an hour faster. And so we get more discoveries based off our previous discoveries, which means as we go through time, we get more and more military discoveries and less and less discoveries made in the non-military sector of the economy. So the scene, right? This is, these are the numbers actually from a recent article by uh, Fuller, who's uh, the political science department at Mason. So if we have the one trillion in defense cuts, he predicts basically 25% loss to GDP you know, that number of workers lost. One of the questions that we're not seeing in this is basically what is it that, like if we have, if we have this many workers and all of these workers are not necessary to provide for our actual security, 
We could be having 25% of our GDP each year spent on something that's entirely not demanded, entirely not the best use of our resources, right? The resources, there's no way, there's no method, without the price system, there's no method of determining whether or not these are actually the most profitable, the most valuable use of the resources that we're using. So we have the employment based on Congress. Each one of the workers could be contributing towards something that actually fulfills consumer demands rather than the administrative preferences. And we have continuous losses to GDP from the economic activity that's not underway. But that's the unseen, right? It's very hard to show that. So some of the implications of this is that the permanent war economy is inherently distortive and that the costs have been routinely underestimated. And that undermining this efficiency is undermining the, the very nature of the economy that leads to actual wealth creation. So to sort of conclude, what we have to sort of think about is we have to rethink the current structure under which we do our defense policy, whether or not we should go back to possibly a system that's more reactionary rather than one that tries to maintain itself in a readiness for war, which also leads to other outcomes, namely that it's less costly to engage in other wars if you have the tanks. Bandel sort of talked about that, right? If we have the army sitting at ready, it's much easier just to send it off wherever we feel like using it. What we need is basically a fundamental, a fundamental institutional reform where we pull back and try to disentangle industry, Congress, and the military. And we need to go back to trying to find solutions that are found in market systems of prices, profit, and loss. Great. Thank you to all of our speakers. And how do I close this? Um, okay, there we go. I think I'll open the floor to questions, and I think we're going to have also a bit of back and forth amongst the panelists, but we'll open it up to Q&A now, and then we'll sort of continue the discussion as we move forward. So if anyone has any questions, feel free to raise your hand right there in the front. I'm Greg Squires, George Washington University, and I want to ask either of you, uh, it's an article of faith that we got out of the Depression because of World War II, and that has sort of fueled this notion that military spending is good for the economy, which you've persuasively shown that it hasn't. But I'd like to know, what, what are your thoughts on that interpretation of the history of the relationship between the Depression and the war, uh, and, and what can we do about the political problem you're, you're, you're addressing here about, because it is true that certain communities stand to lose jobs if you cut back on the tanks, even though the, the economy generally will be better off if those kinds of cuts are made. Yeah, please. Uh, um, so I guess sort of what I would argue is, so if, if what you want to qualify as sort of ending a depression is, is that we hire everyone with you know, via government. You know, that seems like a very strange way to then say that we're getting any sort of economic, good economic outcomes. Um, you know, if you send all of your people off and then they come back, you know, or don't come back, that seems to not be in the interest of economic growth. Um, the way to disentangle seem is, is, is a very difficult problem. Um, there is going to be some upfront readjustment periods, and so that might be rough in the short term, which makes it very politically unpopular. Um, but the question is, 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 is what is the cost of not doing that? Um, if the cost of not doing that is a continuous push up against a fiscal cliff because we're not generating the economic growth that we otherwise would have, it may be worth the cost to take some upfront punishment and go forward. Uh, nothing to add. 
I understand that you also, uh, Dr. Squires, you researched the subject yourself. Do you have any sort of uh, recommendations or do you push back against that conventional notion that uh, World War II got us out of the Depression? Well, yeah, I think it, we need to understand that the, the serious cost, and it's not just the opportunity cost that you mentioned, uh, but it's the cost in terms of the engineers that were training to design the military equipment instead of fuel-efficient cars or more affordable housing or levees that actually work. And, and perhaps even more importantly is, is the notion that, that, that Bandau was getting at earlier, that we're sort of convincing ourselves that we almost have to live in a state of a permanent war uh, economy uh, and, and that uh, uh, you know one of the arguments that, that Randolph Bourne and others have made is that the enemy throughout our history primarily has been war itself, not the particular country that we were engaged in militarily uh, because we find ourselves militarily engaged with people who are our allies one year and a decade later that, that are, are, are the enemies. Um, but I think we can't get, we need to directly confront the fact that there were powerful institutional interests that you guys understand much better than I do about the connections between the Pentagon and defense contractors and, 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 and elected officials and the, the role of campaign financing and getting people elected. There are real strong material interests uh, that benefit from the status quo, even if the, the country generally suffers from that. So these are fundamental political issues that have to be confronted. It's not just a matter of demonstrating how we're spending too much money on a tank when we could be spending more money on a school. And I guess to that point, uh, one thing I found frustrating, I mean, I love both of your presentations, but one thing I found frustrating is that there is um, a great deal of sentiment within the United States to begin sort of cutting back our, our activist role around the world. And at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, Thomas, that there is a great number of bureaucratic and political constraints to pulling back uh, military spending. I guess, does that give you sort of a, a sense of, of pessimism? Is there a way out of this uh, ongoing cycle of uh, you know, Congress and the military and the industries and you know, congressmen who seek to be reelected? Is there any way we can get out of that negative feedback loop? Um, there's definitely some pessimism, but I think that, that it's not all bad because, and, and one of the things that, I mean, I'm, I'm an academic and so I teach, and so one of the things that's most important in one of these things is actually to square with the public through your surveys. You know, you got a different outcome when you gave them more information. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things that we should do is actually give more information about how the system actually works so that people can react against it. I guess uh, another question. I guess directly in the back there. Hello, my name is David. I'm with uh, Senator Johnson. I was curious, like, given that there is a, um, a differentiation in the information that the public has access to as far as threats uh, perceived, seen, and unseen, um, how much role public opinion should have as far as our foreign policy is concerned? Thank you. Well, I think uh, more broadly, it's it's important for U.S. foreign policy to be in line with the the, the values of the, of the American public. Uh, this is consistent with the vision of the founders that the that the deep values of the people, the sense of the people, should really be should guide uh, the government. Um, when it comes to specific uh, decisions at specific moments uh, where the government obviously has more information, uh, obviously then the, the, the government needs to be able to make such decisions and the, and the public supports that. 
Uh, it does raise an interesting question. If people don't have uh, information, should government be more responsive to um, their off-the-cuff um, uh, attitudes or to the attitudes they have when they get more information? And we've asked this to the American public, and they overwhelmingly, like, like four to one, say it should be based on the attitudes they have when they have correct information uh, or more complete information. And by the way, that is also something that the founder said. That uh, and Abraham Lincoln said, you can you can trust the people, um, but you do have to give them the facts. Um, so I think this is a and and this th there is this emerging. Uh, trend in in public opinion research called public consultation. That's a little different than public opinion, where you are actually giving people information, giving them argue, pro and con arguments, and then and it's, it's so that you're sh sure that everybody gets their full uh, play. You know, it's like more like a debate um, where they get to hear every perspective. And, and so you have people across the political spectrum contributing those arguments until everybody's satisfied. I've, been, I've done this many times with groups of congressional staffers all feeding me arguments until everybody's satisfied. Their best arguments are up there. And, so, and then people evaluate all of the arguments, and then they come to conclusions. And, and um, in, 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 particularly in regard to the defense budget, it is, that that's basically what we took them through. And, and they, they still made some very Deep cuts. They didn't just come out like in a in a status quo place. So um, um, and there so there are more efforts now to to give that kind of information to to government and and when people have more information, also by the way, they their views tend to be more stable. Um, it's they're not as reactive to the way the questions worded and so on. And that so that I I, I believe that really should be something that guides policy. Yeah, just to, just a comment on your last point. It was interesting, the slide you had up about Syria and whether Americans want to intervene or not. There seems to be a great reluctance uh, to intervene militarily, at least to impose a no-fly zone. And yet, at the same time, uh, you know, there are Americans who say that, you know, we wouldn't want to intervene, but if all the cost factors are factored in um, and we can sort of intervene and remain unscathed, then we would be willing to intervene. And I remember, <clears throat> at least in the run-up to the war in Libya, uh, there is a great reluctance on behalf of the American people to intervene in Libya. But when, again, the costs were factored in, the idea that we'd be attacking their air defense facilities, then all of a sudden Americans, even by wider margins, said that they didn't want to intervene and didn't want to attack the country. I think you find similar uh, figures, at least with, with Syria as well. Not many Americans know that. If, to impose a no-fly zone, it sounds very antiseptic, sounds very peaceful, but when you realize that you actually have to knock out air defense facilities in order to impose a no-fly zone, then you see the numbers go up and saying that mm -hmm. we're, mm -hmm. we don't want to intervene. Yeah. So no, that's, the, the, that's a whole discussion about no-fly zones, but cost uh, is one factor, um, um, and it tends to be more a focus on cost in terms of uh, um, lives than it is dollars as a, as a driver. Uh, but there's also the legitimacy question. Um, they just think the United States shouldn't be out there using military force uh, on, on its own. They, they have a lot of concerns about whether it's consistent with international law. And overall, they just have this feeling like the United States is always getting out in front too much. And, um, and they perceive that this is part of the hostility uh, around the world uh, toward the United States, particularly in the Muslim world. Um, they think that if if the people in the Muslim world in the or in the Gulf area region don't want uh, U.S. 
bases there, then we shouldn't have them there. So they, they favor much more responsiveness to, 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 to world public opinion. It, this might be a simple question with, with a complex answer. Why is it that millennials are more reluctant to intervene around the world militarily? as opposed to their older generations. Right, except when it's uh, idealistic. <laughs> um, I think that probably this last decade of um, uh, this, with these two major wars um, uh, that produced little of value, uh, that, that made the wor world kind of angry at, at America. Um, the, the Iraq War, this is, this is an important um, uh, um, uh, distinction because going into the Iraq war, you had a majority of Americans said right up to the end, we don't want to go without UN Security Council approval because we're not sure that it's consistent with international law. Um, if the president decides to go ahead, okay, we'll support him, but, but you know, that's just kind of like we're backing the president because we think we should. And that's exactly what happened. There was a, right after they went, there was this surge upward, but it fell off pretty quickly after that. So, there was a, an unease um, about whether this is appropriate, right? This is the way that America should be in the world. This is the kind of order, world order where this kind of thing can be done. Um, and so that, um, that was a kind of foundation. So that Americans are taught a story about uh, America's role in the world that, well, um, be between the wars we were isolationists and that was bad. Um, uh, then you had uh, Hitler violating international law, crossing borders, cross-border aggression, and that was a real no-no, but we didn't really step in right away, but finally we did, and now we know we gotta be there and not allow cross-border aggression. Uh, in the, the first uh, uh, Gulf War with Kuwait, uh, that was the argument that, that moved the American public. Jobs, didn't do it. Oil, didn't do it. But uh, like Hitler, that moved them. So they're very sensitive to this to this frame, and then and then we arrive at the situation with Iraq, and it's like, well, we don't. What's the rationale? What's the the basis? So there was an an unease about that. So that together with just the the sense that the people there don't like us, they don't, they they were not confident that this use of force was actually eliminating the terrorist threat even, that it maybe it was just even creating more terrorists and there are, there's certainly a lot of evidence to, to support that and the research that we've done in the Muslim world. Um, and interestingly, one of the great major themes of the, uh, of the book that I wrote is that on feeling betrayed. They feel betrayed by America because America says, okay, we need to have this international system based on international law that, that, that prohibits the use of military force for uh, gain, uh, any use of coercion, threats, or otherwise, uh, that's, that's, um, you know, that's not how, how the world should work. But then there's a perception that the U.S. has done that, that the U.S. has violated that principle, and that makes the, the that produces a lot of anger at America. And so young people are kind of were born into this situation where there's all this anger, or you know, they, pardon me, they came of age in this in this era where there was a lot of anger at America. There was this discrepancy between what America said it should do and what the world should be, and how America behaved. And then there was um, a lot of effort a lot of expense, a lot of lives lost, and I think the most potent finding of all those numbers I showed you is, and it didn't do anything to stop terrorism, and maybe it's even gotten worse. 
that, that's, that leaves a real sour taste in your mouth about the utility of military force. It certainly is not a heroic uh, narrative. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Oh, Swami in the front. Swami Ayer from the Cato Institute. If we have one more terrorist attack on the United States, will the United States go to war again? Um, I mean, uh, uh, I, 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 first, the easy answer is it depends, or probably depends upon whether the, whether the um, um, threat comes from, where the attack comes from. I mean, Americans believe that if they're attacked, they have a right to defend themselves, so that they have a right to take out an aggressor. Uh, and they did feel overwhelmingly in support of going into the war in Afghanistan because the, the bin Laden was there, Al-Qaeda was there, and, and uh, so they, they overwhelmingly approved that. Um, so the, the, the sh short answer is yes, um, they, do, they would try to remove that threat, um, um, but uh, um, they would probably be more cautious, and, and they're just not always, they're not entirely convinced that the, that the way we've approached it over the last decade has really worked out. Um, I can't really argue much with that. We do tend to be fairly reactionary when things happen, but I do think that perhaps if we have another one pretty soon right now, it might signal that our previous attacks, our previous invasions weren't necessarily the method by which we can protect ourselves because we've done them, and if we get attacked again, then perhaps that's a signal saying that wasn't actually the right response before. But again, it, it depends basically on how it's interpreted when it happens, so it's hard to give a firm answer to what people would do. Yeah, I would, just to assert moderator privilege, I would say that um, if there is another terrorist attack on the United States in the aftermath of two large-scale occupations in Iraq and Afghanistan, a uh, terrorist attack would be the biggest indictment against those two occupations. It shows that those policies don't work. I would say also, if there is any sort of intervention as a result of a terrorist attack, uh, the means that the United States would use would possibly be through drones. We've seen that with after the aftermath of uh, the failed suicide bombing of, uh, from Abu Muttalib, who came from Yemen, emanated from Yemen. Uh, drone strikes increased in Yemen. Uh, we've seen the increase uh, number of drone strikes in neighboring Pakistan. In fact, they've quadrupled under President Obama. Um, so I think overall we're going to see an increase in those sorts of covert secret wars uh, that, of course, they are great in the short term, but they have long-term implications. Um, and of course, as we know, as an economist, Swami, I know you know this very well, well, uh, when you decrease costs, you increase demand. And so since it's easier to you know, deploy a drone rather than deploying 100,000 troops to a foreign country, we might actually see more US intervention uh, because we don't really bear the full cost of that. Gentleman in the front. Hi, I'm Jim Lowen. I wrote the book Lies My Teacher Told Me. And I would suggest that um, you might add another component to the military-industrial complex, um, and Mr. Bandel kind of re uh, referred to it at the beginning, and that would be the military-industrial propaganda complex. Um, when I studied, my book is based on my intensive reading of 18 high school history textbooks. I'm the only American ever to attempt this feat. Um, <laughs> and... and um, Every one of them basically pictures, uh, I call this chapter, uh, the international good guy, that we are just trying to uh, present, uh, protect freedom around the world. Uh, and when you mention our values, by that, the textbooks mean our really good values. Uh, American exceptionalism means we're exceptionally nice. 
uh, not exceptionally interventionist, which would be perhaps more accurate. And then we see this at the Smithsonian, where in the National Museum of American History, uh, the military hi history, the larger single exhibit there, is called uh, In Defense of Freedom. And the war in Vietnam, for instance, is treated under that rubric. That, that's an interesting problem. I wonder if you have any comments on the military industrial propaganda complex. If you want to start. Oh. Mm. Um, so it may be, I don't want to conjecture too much, but it does, as economically, the bigger that your military industrial complex gets and the more people's lives are actually impacted by even just the fundings, right? How many people now have their jobs or their subsidiary jobs are actually affected by the, by the military industrial complex? It's going to necessarily change the way that you view the military. If I'm dependent on the military, then I'm going to be much more hesitant to say, no, this was bad, we're doing bad things. I'm going to be more along the lines of, you know, actually, they're paying my salary. Um, so maybe it's not all that bad, um, which is a problem also that you have to sort of contend with. I would emphasize that the American public learns, um, and whatever the propaganda machine is doing, they don't simply buy it all. Uh, if you take Vietnam, they don't. Th th that is seen as a mistake, and um, the the way that narrative works is that we kind of charged off with this idea that we are defending freedom, um, but the rest of the world wasn't with us. The international system wasn't with us, and we were perceived as being a bully. And we got mired down, and well, let's not do that again. Um, and let's always be sure that we're together with other countries and we have that legitimacy. And that's why people didn't want to go into Iraq on our own. Uh, that's why with Iran, no matter what, they don't, you know, you, whenever you bring up, and so should we go ahead? on our own, and then it's just the numbers always drop off precipitously. And it's very connected to the narrative that's uh, of, of Vietnam, the, the mistake we made. So, you know, people do, do learn. I mean, of course, there's, they are responsive to, to, to positive narratives that, that affirm, uh, uh, affirm us as a special country, and, and, and most Americans believe that. But they are definitely dubious about... Uh, um, uh, the, uh, the potential or, or concern that, that, that American hubris can lead us in places that we shouldn't go. I think also propaganda can be both official and unofficial. Uh, we saw in the lead up to the Iraq war, uh, many political pundits in Washington, D.C. said that the intervention would be a cakewalk, we'd be uh, greeted as liberators, uh, that the, the, the roads would be paved with, with roses for us, uh, that the Iraqi oil wealth would pay for the occupation, and of course none of that came to fruition. So uh, it can be both official and unofficial. It's been estimated that the Pentagon spends a little over half a billion dollars a year on public relations alone, just public affairs officers and, and things of that nature. Um, I guess the gentleman in the front, and I think we might wind it up after that. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jim Byrne. I'm a uh, journalist here in town. I've had considerable experience in situations like this, although not military. I'm not very knowledgeable about that, but I'm the original editor of Tax Notes magazine, and I also was heavily involved in the coverage of the whole health care bill. In the case of tax policy, we had tremendous backing from both executive branch and congressional staff who were scholars in, in tax policy. And we were Republican or Democrat. We were on the same page. And there wasn't this tremendous personal stake 
in the economics of an outcome there uh, by the people the members of Congress were hearing most often. Uh, in healthcare, it was a huge mess. I, I have never in my life covered anything as complicated as this whole healthcare thing. We're still learning about that. And in the end, the health insurance companies blew everybody out of the water. John Conyers, the principal hero of single payer, didn't even introduce the bill. Didn't introduce the bill on the end. He realized he had been killed by the health insurance industry. What do you find as you discuss these issues uh, with congressional staff? Um, are there objective people who see a point in the arguments you make? Uh, there's a um, big range of opinion uh, on the Hill. It's, it's, it's hard to, to characterize the Hill in, in, one, in a singular way. Um, there are certainly many congressional staffers and members of Congress who have doubts about um, uh, U.S. foreign policy and, and perceive that the United States has made mistakes uh, um, and has overextended itself and been too free to use its military force or tended to assume that military force was the answer too often. Um, there, 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 there are many who do. Now, one of the factors that we have tried to address is there is a strong tendency uh, and this has been studied by psychologists and research psychologists, that there's this tendency to believe that it is politically safe to take a more aggressive militaristic approach than it is to, to not, right? Now, you would say, well, why is that? I mean, if, if, if the public is in, in, in a particular position, why, why, why is there greater risk in, 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 in not uh, being forceful than in being too forceful, right? But that is a, it's, it's deeply, I, I don't know if, if it's been done, studied internationally, but this is a strong assumption among policymakers and, and average people too. It's just seen as politically safer. And that, um, that is a big, a big factor. It's just it's, um, that, uh, that limits people acting on, on their assumptions. Closing comments? Um, I guess I might just suggest that one of the reasons you might see that sort of last outcome is that, um, so if there's not much cost to doing the action in, in terms of initial costs, right, you might as well go ahead and do the action because at least then you don't see, you don't run the risk of having a second sort of attack happen again you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Right. Um, and you also, if you can't satisfy the public, either way you do it, you might as well satisfy your interests, which are the ones that want you to do more engagement, which are the ones that... Right. And it, it, you, you rarely get criticized for doing too much. You know, when, if there's a, a killing in Benghazi, it's like somebody did something wrong, right? That shouldn't have happened. More should have been done. And um, so if... But if we spend a lot of money for no, no effective purpose... Nobody gets really punished for that. And with that, we'll bring this discussion to a close. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out this evening. And thank you also to those watching online. Uh, please join us in the Winter Garden for a reception. And thank you, of course, to the panelists. You've been fantastic. Thank you.